Welcome to First Hamilton CRC Sermon Podcast. My name is Chris Schoon. I serve as the lead pastor here at First Hamilton. We are delighted that you are listening in. We hope and pray that this message will be an encouragement to you as you seek to know and follow Jesus Christ. So we have three scripture passages, uh, and I will read them for us this morning. The first is from Genesis chapter 3, and it serves as a bit of background to the story of Esther, especially to chapter 1. And this passage is uh, the point where God is naming the consequences of the, of the fall, of us rebelling against God. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, which painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And from Esther chapter 1. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukan replied in the presence of the king and nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes, Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about your queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. 
Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. And then from chapter 9. Starting at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is the word of the Lord. You may have heard this opening paragraph before, at least the first line of it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. This really could have been applied to the book of Esther. It could have been applied to this first chapter especially. You may have remembered from last week, those of you who were here, that Pastor Hayden introduced us to this book by starting in the very middle of it. And he put up on the screen this uh, kind of chart, this breakdown of how the book of Esther flows. And, and you'll see that it flows to that point where the king couldn't sleep. He had a restless night of sleep. And then the whole thing changes. In fact, most of the commentators talk about the book of Esther as a book of great reversals. What happens in the first half gets echoed and reversed in the second half. And in many ways, it is that tale. <laughs> there is a best of times and a worst of times all through this story. And it flips for certain people throughout the story. Uh, for King Xerxes, he seems kind of above the fray all the way through, but if you listen and pay attention closely, he is nearly always drunk. If you pay attention to the story, you see Haman starting at the beginning. He is not even introduced yet, but he comes in and things are well. He is kind of the prized noble of the kingdom. And by the end of the story, he's impaled on a 70-foot uh, tower that he had set up to kill Mordecai. Mordecai is on the streets, living on the street, it appears, just outside the king's palace. And by the end of the story, he is second in command in the kingdom. Great reversals all the way around. 
It's important for us to keep that idea of great reversals in our mind today as we engage the story because there is a great reversal that's happening here or at least that is, is pointed to in this text. And it, it begins with the first part of that, the king's wealth flaunted. Now, we didn't read all of chapter 1, but if you do, you see the king's wealth and op, the opulence, the, the over-the-topness of his kingdom, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But where we really need to begin is the curse. Way back at the beginning of the biblical story, sometimes I'll, I'll walk up here and I'll, I'll kind of help us outline the, the whole biblical narrative. And we have this creation that God made everything good and, and made life to flourish. And then we had this fall where humanity said, thanks but no thanks, God, we'll do it on our own. And then you had God with this long road of redemption, this commitment to say, I'm not going to let things end that way. I'm not going to let my people die or my creation be destroyed. And he works towards the point of Jesus Christ. And then following Christ, we have the sending of the Spirit, the raising up of the church and the equipping, looking to that day when, when that fall and the consequences of the fall will be no more. And God's people will live in this flourishing world. And for us to understand what's happening in Esther, which is part of that long road of redemption, we need to understand the curses or the consequences that came with that fall. And they appear in three parts. The first is a, a disruption and a promise that are woven together. It's a disruption of the relationship between humanity and creation. And it's symbolized by this, this interaction with the serpent who has misled Adam and Eve. And all of creation is an upheaval. And in the midst of that upheaval, God gives this promise that one day God will end the enmity that is there, the divisiveness between Satan and all those allied with Satan and humanity. And God's going to work out this promise. And in some sense, a question starts arising already here in the text. Well, how is God going to do that? How is God going to bring about that day where, where the offspring of the woman ends the serpent's reign, ends the authority of the serpent over humanity, It brings about that day? How is that going to happen? When is that going to happen? And that's a question that plays throughout Esther. The second part is in the God speaking the consequences of the sin to Eve, he, he makes this statement to her. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. If we read Genesis 1 carefully, there's an equality of men and women that's in that text. And after the fall, after the curse, there's a division that happens that men begin to rule over women. And if you listen to chapter 1 carefully, you heard that echoed. And we'll come back to that in a moment. That disparity and that enmity that sits between men and women. And then finally this, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. This is what he says to Adam. And that good work that J.D. just talked to us about, that sense of work having dignity and where we can we can live into and embody the image of God the way we go about our work gets distorted and work becomes a burden, a toiling, and the ground in creation resists humanity. 
Uh, all three of these curses are playing throughout this text, and they're in the background. And if we're going to understand how God moves through the book of Esther to deliver his people and ultimately to point towards the coming of the Messiah, we need to understand that all that takes place in chapters 2 and forward sits in this background story of the beginning curse. You may say, so can God deliver us from the curse? That's actually probably the lead question that's sitting in the background of this text, especially chapter 1. Can God deliver us from the curse? And not just the people of Israel. If you notice, the people of Israel are not mentioned in chapter 1. No, Vash, or no Esther, no Mordecai, no reference to the Jews, no reference to the exile, no reference to any of the kings of Israel uh, who have been taken off by the Babylonian captivity. There's none of that. There's no mention of God's name. And as Hayden mentioned last week, there's actually no mention of God's name all the way through the book of Esther. It's as if the people themselves are caught up in this curse they're caught up in the, in, and entangled in the curse. And, and what God's saying to us through the book of Esther is this sin problem, it isn't just for people who know about God. It isn't just for the people who, who have followed God throughout history. It isn't just for the Israelites. This, this sin and the consequences of sin extend to the whole earth. The whole world is caught up in the curse for us to understand what God is doing through his people and among his people, we need to understand the context. And this is the question. Can God deliver us from the curse? Can God really do what he said he would do at the beginning? That one day, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Maybe another place for us to add in here as we enter into this text is, is this question and answer. We often reflect on the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, which talks about our only comfort in life and in death. And we love saying that when we say it at funerals, we say it in catechism class. It's often one of the first questions and answers that people in the Reformed tradition le learn. But it's surprising how few of us learn the second one. We're, we're kind of in love with comfort. We don't like looking at this part. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer comes as three things. First, you must, first, how great my sin and misery are. Well, there it goes. <laughs> Who of us likes talking about our sin and misery? No, seriously, anybody? <laughs> A few of us. We don't want to talk about sin and misery. And yet the catechism, the way we are taught, what, what this reflects on is that if we're going to know the comfort of God in Jesus Christ, we actually have to take a hard look at what's broken, at how we are entangled, hopelessly entangled in sin and the misery that accompanies that sin. That word misery is really not about uh, a sense of, oh, I didn't get my way. <laughs> I'm having a miserable day. That word misery has a broader meaning to it. It means that relationships are distorted. It means things are out of place. Things don't fit the way they were intended to. 
And living in misery is a sense of saying, I'm caught up in consequences I can't get out of. There aren't any bootstraps to pull myself up by on this. I'm stuck. Think of it being mired in quicksand that you can't get out of, at least not on your own. The second, how I am set free from all of my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Over the next few weeks, those ideas of how I am set free from all my sin and misery will become more and more and more clear. And so will it become clear of how I am to thank God for such deliverance. But today, our look's going to be a a little bit longer at that first part, how great my sin and misery are. Esther, really, today, as we're engaging this, is a, a tale of two feasts. And if you read through the book of Esther, there's at least four different banquets or feasts that are talked about. You could probably argue that there's closer to six or seven that are hinted at. They're all the way through here. There is constant feasting. But that feasting has, has some different aspects to it than we might expect. This feast that happens in Esther chapter 1 is actually a 180-day party, six-month party. Who's been to one that long? We know from other historical records that King Xerxes actually held a six-month war council during this time. So we can pretty much date when the book of Esther happened and, and how this was happening. He wanted to go to war with Greece because Greece had defeated his dad. And he's coming along now as king, and the one thing he wants to do is show that his dad wasn't a loser. And so he pulls all the nobility together into the the capital city of Susa, one of the four capital cities that they had. This was essentially one of his seasonal homes. And and the whole city of Susa is caught up in this 180-day party, which also happens to be a war council. You need to understand as well that after that 180-day party, the text said he threw another seven-day party just for the kind of exclusive elite people of, of the group. So it's kind of the nobility of the nobility. Come, hang out at my palace. And in that place, there is so much liberality. And in fact, the text goes out of its way to emphasize how incredible this palace was and how much food and wine was there. And if you read through all of Scripture, there are only two other physical buildings described with as much detail. It's the tabernacle that gets built in the desert with Moses, and it's the temple being built by Solomon. Then you get the glimpse at the end of Revelation of that temple being rebuilt in the new heaven and new earth. But other than that, no other building is described, no other place is described in as much detail as this. And essentially what it's saying is, Xerxes is living like a god on earth. He is setting himself up as God. The people of Israel who were experiencing this and hearing this would have seen that and they would have made that connection. This king thinks he's God. And he did. He he essentially said, here's everything I have, and I want all of you to share in it. And there's an emphasis that comes up already here about the amount of wine that everyone who is gathered there could have as much wine as they want. From some of the other records, there's a little bit of humor with this. With some of the other records that we have from that time period, uh, the Persian kings made all their decisions while they were drunk. 
You may think this is not a wise policy. But here's what they did. They would drink and drink and drink, and they would come up with solutions to all their problems. Essentially, what are we going to talk about today? And they would drink until they had a solution. And the scribes who were in the room would write everything down. And when they, when they woke up in the morning and kind of sobered up from the hangover, they would ask the scribes to read back to them what, had, what they had decided the night before. And the scribes would read it. And if they still liked it when they were sober, they went with it. And if they didn't like it, they called everybody back together and started drinking again until they could find a new solution. Now, I emphasize that because there is only one point in the whole, whole book of Esther where King Xerxes walks away from wine. And we'll get to that in a couple weeks. But it is a pivotal point in the story. The king actually sets the wine down and it makes a point of saying he leaves the wine. This wine, this drunkenness was a part of that culture. Now if you think in terms of the curse, you have a whole bunch of nobility who are not doing any work of the land anymore. They found a way to scheme the curse to make it beneficial to themselves. They found a way to enjoy the fruit of the land without having to work any, anything for it. They found a way to, to essentially make themselves better than not just the women of the curse, but all the men of the curse. And they had people around them. If you heard in the storyline as I was reading, he had seven eunuchs around him. A eunuch was someone in that day and age who had been castrated. So he couldn't and quite bluntly, he couldn't have sex with the king's harem. The eunuchs were the people who the king kept closest to him because he knew they couldn't, they couldn't subvert his kingdom somehow. They were usually brought over as slaves from other kingdoms that the king had conquered, and often nobility from those kingdoms, so that the sense of the king could say, look at all the kingdoms I have overthrown by the people he surrounded himself with that he forced to serve him. And not only does he have one or two eunuchs, the text says he has seven eunuchs, the number of fullness. He has a full, full slate of eunuchs around him. Life was not quite as pretty for them as it was for the king. The tale of two cities starts to show. Queen Vashti refuses to come before the king, and it emphasizes the king's impotence when she does. But we need to recognize something that's going on in this text as well. It said that the king issued in the midst of this, or at the end of this 187-day party now, when they are certainly liquored up, he wants the queen, Vashti, to come and appear before him. Remember, he's been showing the nobility all his wealth and resources and saying, look, everything I have is yours if you'll come to war with me. I can take care of you if you just come to war with me. And the last crowning achievement of all of this is to call in the queen and to have the queen come before him and come before all the nobles and parade around in front of them to show off her beauty some of the older Jewish commentators on this text have said the implication here is that she would come in wearing nothing but her royal crown. We need to know how deep the sin and misery go. She was nothing but an object, a sexual object, 
that he could show around to the other nobles and say, this too is yours if you come to war with me. If you go along with what I want, I'll give you everything I have, and here's my queen. Are we starting to feel the depravity that's in the background of this text? The heaviness that's here. Queen Vashti refuses the king's invitation, the king's command. She knows what's been going on. In fact, if you read the text closely, she was throwing her own party on the other side of the palace, not wanting to be caught up in what the king and his nobles were doing. The response of the nobles here is quite telling. The king says, what do I do? I've just been humiliated in front of everybody that I'm trying to impress. What do I do? Where do I go with this? And the response from the nobles, it says, King, it's not just about you. In fact, Vashti's insulted all, the, all of us, all of us noblemen, all of us who are in power and authority, and, and with one word of no, she's upset the whole cycle that we've been operating on, the whole system that has kept us in power. And you hear them say words that essentially say, we don't ever want the curse to end. Did you catch that in there? There's an empire-wide implication of the queen off in this palace in Susa saying no to the emperor. The whole world is caught up in this, and the relationship that gets emphasized is the distortion of men and women's relationship, and the nobles want to make sure the women can't rise up. They want to keep the women subjected to them. In other words, they want to keep that curse in place. Don't let it fall apart because they have the advantage in this curse. If women and men are equals, they lose their power. If women and men are equals, they lose their authority in the kingdom. If women and men are equals, they lose all the liberality and freedom that they have been indulging in without ever working. I was trying to figure out how do I move from here into our context. The sad thing is, I don't think I have to say a whole lot. I don't have to name names of people who have made headlines by abusing the curse. It sounds funny to say abusing the curse, of taking advantage of the curse, of men who have taken advantage of women. I mean, if we just simply look at the stats, they talk about one in, anywhere from one in three to one in four women have suffered sexual abuse at some point in their life. We're not that far away from what they were experiencing there. We've seen in the news a whole bunch of people trying to keep power and authority, of trying to, to exaggerate the difference between men and women, of trying to get to a point where men maintain control. And our hearts cry out. And we cry out much as, as the women in Xerxes' court, as the eunuchs in Xerxes' court, as the servants in Susa who were, who were funding and serving this party, we cry out with them as well. 
Can God actually deliver us from the curse? Can God deliver us from these horrific abuses that have happened and still happen? Is God going to intervene? That's what's happening in this story. That's why chapter 1 is in this story without ever mentioning God, without ever mentioning the people of Israel, without ever mentioning covenant promises because this is the context of our world still today. That we are a people who still have some, of, some remnants of that curse hanging over us and quite frankly living within us. And we want to know, can God deliver us from this curse? The book of Esther is emphatic that yes, God can and in fact is delivering his people from the curse. And the book of Esther points us toward that day when God will ultimately make all things new, when he will end the curse. We get a glimpse of it in chapter 9. Now, it feels kind of funny, and, and Hayden mentioned this last week as well, it feels kind of funny, how do we read this book? Because this book is hard, hard to read if you just read it through. It's hard to preach on it because we would be stuck today in chapter 1 going, ugh, and not knowing where to go. But because this is a book of those great reversals, we're able to look at chapter 1 and then look towards the end of the story and go, where did God go with this? And each week as we go through it, we're going to look at some of those things that were happening that were wrong in the first part, and we'll see together how God does a reversal and brings about new, new life and hope in the second half. And so we look just briefly at 9, 20 to 22. What gets instituted there is not this one extravagant party, but an annual party that's supposed to be done uh, one or two days, depending if you live in the city or the countryside. And there's a little more explanation of that in the text than, than what we read today. But every year, to remember God's deliverance, the end of the story ends with God's people being delivered from a situation that seemed impossible for them to get out of. When there was no hope left, God stepped in and God redeemed them. God restored them. God saves them. And that happens here. And what gets introduced is what we call today the Jewish holiday of Purim. And that Jewish holiday of Purim is a time of festivities. In fact, over the years since then, it's not in the biblical text, but over the years since then, they developed a pattern of saying, on this day, we are to celebrate God's deliverance to such a point that we drink ourselves drunk. Quite seriously. That we drink until we're drunk, celebrating God's difference, deliverance until we can't tell whether we're giving the blessing of Mordecai or the curse of Haman to the people we're talking with. Have you ever heard the Bible say, get drunk? <laughs> this is what builds out of it. I'm not saying we're supposed to go out and get drunk, but there is something that's happening here. That the people who were hopeless have been so delivered, have been given such redemption that they cannot help themselves but overflow with joy and thanksgiving. 
that they cannot help themselves but set aside the work to say, we must celebrate today because God is faithful. God has delivered his people. We must celebrate. And so year in and year out, the Jewish people remember this holiday. They remember God's deliverance. They look back and say, how did God intervene? And look what he did through Esther and Mordecai and the people at that time. Look how he saved them. Isn't God good? And what that, re- what that holiday ends up do- doing for them By looking back and remembering, they're able to look around them and take an honest look at the circumstances of their lives and say, even though we find ourselves still entangled in sin, even though we find ourselves in circumstances that still feel disruptive and quite frankly hellish, we know that God is faithful. Remember what he did back then? Trust he will do so again today that he will not leave us, that this suffering we are experiencing won't be the end of the story. There will be a day when God makes all things new. And so this celebration of remembering also becomes hope for the present, and it becomes a confidence in looking ahead, an assurance of salvation, relief from their enemies. Becomes one of the key phrases in here, that God gave them relief from their enemies. It adds to this. It's to be done as this is the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And that phrase is particularly potent because it's the phrase that Jesus uses when he's about to go to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane He's with his disciples and he's imparting to them his last words of wisdom. He's giving them assurance when they sense the worry filling up within them. He's just told them in a few moments, you're not going to see me anymore. You won't know where I'm going. You can't go with me on this next stage of the journey. And he recognizes that they're distraught. And this is part of how he responds. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Sounds like the start of Esther. God's people weeping and mourning while the world seems to be having a party. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And we begin to see through Jesus, through his death on the cross, this commitment that we're ushered into the kingdom of God. We're ushered into the care of God the Father, whose generosity is beyond our imagination whose generosity is beyond King Xerxes, beyond King Xerxes' liberality, which came about at the expense of others. God's generosity comes about at his own expense, at his son dying on the cross. And it's important for us to recognize that this dying on the cross was not just to save people in terms of relationship with God. This was an undoing of the curse as a whole. As Paul's writing to the Colossians, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, him being Christ. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God is at work in Jesus Christ, undoing the consequences of the curse. God is restoring relationships between men and women. God is restoring relationships between us and creation. God is restoring relationships between us and God. And in fact, God is doing this not just for people who have called upon his name. God is at work doing this that the whole cosmos, the whole of creation might be reconciled to God, might be set free from sin and its consequences, from sin and misery. And though today we've taken a hard look at that sin and misery, we do so with the understanding that God's work in Jesus Christ is to undo all of that, to bring about that day when that sin and misery that we still find ourselves entangled in, that that will end. John picks this up as well in his uh, letter of Revelation. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order, that order established in the curse of the fall, the curse of our sins, that distortion of relationship between us and creation, that distortion where Satan has some authority in our lives, that distortion where men and women's relationship is all broken, that distortion where the relationship between us and work is shattered. One day, that order is going to pass away. And it's because of what God has done in Jesus Christ on the cross And so we look. We look back to the cross. We remember, just as the people of Israel remember the celebration of Purim, we remember that Good Friday. And we remember God's sacrifice on that cross to set us free, to free us from sin and misery, to deliver us, as the Catechism says, from the tyranny of the devil, that we might live lives of joy and peace and hopeful confidence today, no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, no matter how the curse shows up in our lives and in our world, that we are able to live as God's people here and now because the confident hope of what God has already done and the promise of what God is yet to do. I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we'll sing a song about God's grace being enough being sufficient for us in this time. And after that, we're going to go into a time of confession and repentance. Some of you may have noticed we didn't do that earlier. And that time of confession and repentance is is a place for us to acknowledge, as we'll do with Psalm 2, that the consequences of sin fill the earth, but also a time for us to be restored as God works in our lives. I invite you to pray with me.
Some days are hard, Lord. Some days are really hard. We don't want to look at our sin and misery. We'd rather look away. Look away from the difficult things that are on the news. Look away from the difficult things that have happened in our lives. Look away from those painful spaces where we have been harmed or where we have harmed others. We don't want to look at our sin and misery. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. It feels hopeless. It weighs us down. We don't know how to get out of this. We can't get out of this on our own, Lord. We need your salvation. We need you to save us. We trust that you have done so in Jesus Christ. As we still feel the lingering consequences of that original sin and the ways we have advanced that sin in our own lives and in the lives of others, Lord, we plead for your spirit. Come and help us to experience your forgiveness. Help us to experience the victory of Jesus Christ through the cross. Help us to experience the new life, the resurrection life that you have given to us, that you have assured us is ours in Jesus Christ. Set our feet into the path of the good life that is in your Son, Jesus Christ, and found in him alone. And Lord, may you haste that day May you bring about that day when you make all things new and the curse is completely gone from all of our experiences and our mourning really does turn into joy. We beg you for this. Not only for us, but for the whole of your creation. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing.